Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well in song and preparing our hearts to turn to God's word. Why don't you turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and this morning, we'll actually go ahead and, and finish out the rest of this chapter. Having studied the wedding at Cana, we'll come to a close on this chapter before endeavoring into a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. John chapter 2. Before I read God's Word, let me remind you that in our Bible reading plan, we do have these booklets that are now available to you. They're for your help, for you to be able to take notes as you read and study. And so feel free to grab one. They're at the welcome table. Um, And we would love for you to pick one up before you leave today. I'd also be remiss if I didn't say, Happy birthday, Matt Palladian. Today is Matt's birthday. And so as our elder statesman... Um, we are gifting him a, a wheelchair and a walker, and we love Matt very much, and also Elizabeth Kim, who turns 18 today. John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse 13 and going all the way through the end of the chapter. Why don't you read with me? Uh, in fact, let's pick up actually at verse 12, uh, at the end of this wedding at Cana. And the word of God reads, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Thus reads the word of God. Pray with me as we enter into our time in this text. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Help us even in these next minutes here to give our full attention to what you have to say. Thank you that in this text we recognize that Jesus truly is God and that in being so, he takes his worship seriously and he understood very well what it would take to make true worshipers for God. It would take his own life and his own resurrection to redeem us from our sins so that we would worship God in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the Son. We thank you for his sacrifice. 
We thank you for new life in him. And we pray that in light of that life, we would now turn to your word, finding in it words of life and hope and joy for all of us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we turn back into John chapter 2, I wanted first to actually point back to our sermon from last week, and it was mainly for this reason. I think last week when we talked about the wedding at Cana, we discussed about the bridegroom, and I think I may have said that the bridegroom was a best man, which is completely incorrect. And so I was uh, having a hard time looking at my notes, and the reason I said best man is there's thought that the best man could be this master of the feast, that isn't confirmed. What we do know is that's not a bridegroom. A bridegroom is simply a groom. And so he's called a bridegroom because he's going to have a bride. So the groom is in charge of this wedding. And something that was of note in this wedding that helps lead us into this text is you would remember that at this wedding, Jesus does this incredible miracle, right? Jesus turns water into the finest grape juice that you have ever seen or wine. And so Jesus does this great miracle, and in doing so, there is a, a key um, use or instrument of which Jesus uses to accomplish this. And I think we'd be uh, missing some of what's about to come in chapter 2 if we didn't take note of it. Back when we studied this wedding at Cana, I hope you noticed that the place where Jesus decides to make this miracle happen, verse 6 of chapter 2, is by means of six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. And that's not a a passing comment. That isn't something that's mentioned just so that um, you would have more details. It matters. Those six stone water jars, they were there because uh, the Israelites, God's people, the Jews at this time, they recognized these to be something that purified the people. They were meant for a ceremonial ritual. When you came to eat or you came to a wedding like this where you would eat for a week at a time with your friends and your family, that would be a lot of dirty dishes, that would be a lot of dirty hands, and these were meant for the cleaning of those kinds of things, your hands, your dishes, utensils. And I know we talked about that briefly last time, but something of note for all of us is think about the fact that Jesus takes these religious instruments And he turns them into instruments of his own grace. It's by means of these ritualistic methods, these six stone water jars meant for cleaning hands and washing plates that Jesus then introduces us to his power and glory. And it's going to become a theme throughout this book and throughout the Gospels as you read them that Jesus takes Judaism He takes the things that are meant for ritual and he turns them upside down to demonstrate his grace. Anyone at that wedding who would have known what Jesus had done would have been appalled. Now, not very many saw what Jesus did. There were servants that saw it, maybe even his disciples. But if the religious elites, the religious leaders of that day saw Jesus using those stone water jars for this purpose they would have been angry. I can assure you they would have been upset because that's not what they were meant for. And one of the biggest things that's going on in this text, in this time when Jesus steps in, 
is that the Jewish people are so stuck in all kinds of ceremonies, so stuck in all kinds of rituals, so stuck in all kinds of religiosity that they're missing the Son of God before them. It's on the backdrop of that reality that we enter into the temple at Jerusalem. We are in a land that is filled with religion. We're in a land that is filled with trying to please God even if they don't know him. We are filled in a, a land with that, we're in a land that's filled with people who are trying to do things for God but apart from God's instruction. We're in a land where people are trying really hard to impress God instead of receiving from God what God has planned and desired for them. The Jews have added and added and added to all of God's laws, leading to all of kinds of rituals and traditions that have nothing to do with Him. And now... We turn in our Bible to John 2, 12, 13, and here Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover. And mind you, the Passover is not an optional kind of thing. It's not an extra biblical thing. It's not something that these religious leaders have come up with, and it's not a part of God's plan. This is something that God designed for his people. The Passover is the celebration that co- commemorates when Israel was led out of Egypt and delivered from their bondage and slavery. You probably remember it well, but back in the book of Exodus, you know that Israel had been taken captive after a while of being in in Egypt, and then eventually Moses comes along and he delivers them, and we turn to passages like Exodus 12, We're here as uh, the Lord begins to usher in his plan to save his people. There is a particular sign that will remind them of God's covenant and his promise and his love. Exodus 12, 23. The Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. This is how God would save his people. They would make a sacrifice and they would commemorate that sacrifice by spreading the blood of that lamb on their door. And when the angel of death who came to save them and to destroy Egypt, when he saw that blood, he would pass over it, making it very easy to understand where we get the name from. But notice Exodus 12 verse 24, not only were they to do this in their current context, but verse 24 says, You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter in the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. That's the right thing to do when salvation comes to you. You bow and worship. And here, now Israel has this commemorative event by which they always remember where God delivers them from their oppressors. 
God delivers them from their enemies. God delivers them from their bondage. And, and Jesus, being God himself, takes part in this event. He walks up to Jerusalem to partake in this Passover. And here, where we see Jesus entering into the scene of Jerusalem, seeing many coming into town, preparing to celebrate this great event, this great commemoration of salvation and deliverance, the tables will be turned, literally and figuratively. Because here, whereas before we could have thought, maybe Jesus is doing something wrong with these six stone water jars, here we come to find Jesus is seeing everything wrong with the way that these people are worshiping God. And the key takeaway for us from this text will be this. As Jesus steps into this Passover celebration, one of three along this journey that he will face on his earthly ministry, Jesus will see the worship of his people and it will drive him mad. Jesus takes the worship of God seriously. What you do in the presence of God matters. And Jesus, to him, he is consumed with a passion for seeing God known, but also for seeing God express themselves towards him in the way that they should. He finds everything here wrong. And he came to make it right. I want us to look at this text by means of three scenes, three scenes that will help us to understand that Jesus truly is God and that believing in him causes us to worship God rightly. That if we're to trust in this Jesus, we won't just marvel at a story where Jesus takes God seriously, but as his people, we too will take God as seriously as he does. That if we take God at his word and we want to honor God, then we'll seek to worship God as God says we should. Let's look at this by means of three scenes. Number one, I want you to see Jesus purging the temple. Jesus purging the temple, beginning here in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We talked about the implications of what this Passover is. Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem. And mind you, to celebrate this Passover, Jesus is not the only one heading there. Many would be entering into town for this celebration. It's estimated that in Jerusalem around this time, there's probably something around a quarter of a million people that live there. But as you know from your Old Testament, or maybe if you don't know, Israel has long been scattered. And so now, Jews from everywhere enter into town to celebrate this annual celebration. And so people are flocking into Jerusalem from all over the place. And Jesus is one of those guys. It's estimated that at this time, there's probably over a million people entering into Jerusalem to celebrate this event. So there's a lot of people coming into town. And really what we should know is there should be a lot of worshipers that are entering into town. And yet what Jesus finds is not worship, but something altogether different. Jesus enters into the temple, verse 14, 
And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. Now of note, in verse 14, where Jesus enters into the temple, it's not the center place of this temple, and it's not necessarily even where the Jews would have worshipped. It's actually the outer courts of the temple. The way it's noted for us is really that this is a temple area, and it's likely that he's simply entering into the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews did not worship together. And Jesus enters into this outer court where the Gentiles would be, a place where God was beginning to manifest his full and redemptive plan of bringing Gentiles into a full knowledge of him. And instead of worship, he sees a marketplace. Instead of coming to church and seeing a worship center and rooms filled with people studying the word and praying to God and singing to God, He walked in and he saw Ralph's and Walmart and a gas station, which doesn't make any sense. Like you wouldn't expect to walk into the worship center and be able to buy bread and shaving cream and a pigeon, like in this text. But Jesus enters into this scene and there's people selling all kinds of stuff and nobody's worshiping. Now, there's nothing wrong with the fact that they're selling these items. The reason they are is because at this Passover feast, sacrifices will be made. Sacrifices will be made in obedience to God for the atonement for sin. And so they they bring these items knowing that the people need them. It's as if those who are setting up shop in the temple know exactly what it is the people need to celebrate this feast, this event. However, it's not the knowledge of that that's a problem. It's the taking advantage of it that is. These people have entered into God's house and they're now selling things off, not in a manner to help the people, but to steal from them, to take from them, to take advantage of them. And so here Jesus steps in. No one's worshiping, but everyone's buying and selling. God's house has turned into a marketplace. People are being abused. Their possessions are being taken from them. Their money being taken from them simply to buy a sacrifice. Not only that, but you notice that in the temple, there's also these uh, noted as money changers that are sitting there. Because entering into the the temple at this time, there was also a tax on the people. You were taxed to come to church. You were taxed to come into the synagogue. You were taxed to come into the temple. And so entering into that temple, not only were you taxed, but you had to pay up in the currency that the temple desired. And so it's like a great money exchange. You came in and you had to change out your money for temple money to be able to pay the tax. And I don't know if you understand the way that this is working, but here's what's actually happening here. It's not only that the things are being sold left and right and that money is being exchanged for the currency of the temple, but it's that it's being done at a profit. That truly bothers Jesus. And I think you know how this works. You ever done Postmates? Yeah, that guy did. And so you know what Postmates does, right? You put all your food in there, everything you want. You know, let's say you're ordering from, I don't know, Chick-fil-A, right, okay, perfect. 
So we're ordering from Chick-fil-A. Love it. We're Christians, so that's what we do. And so we're ordering from Chick-fil-A. You got your spicy deluxe in there. You got a large waffle fry. You got a large salad. All in all, because you just ordered for you because you're a little selfish, but that's okay. We're going to work with it. Illustration. Uh, your total came out to uh, 1875. Great year, by the way. 1875. And you go and you say, perfect. Let me continue to payment and let's get this done with. And then when you say continue to payment, it goes up to $33. And you're wondering, what in the world just happened? Did I order twice as much? Did I add two fries? Maybe I did. I love, I love the fries, so maybe I did. I'm not mad at it. And if I did, I'm going to keep it. Or just scroll down a little bit, and you'll find there's a service charge that just, just hit you for $10. And you're wondering, what is this service charge for? And like me, that's the most you ask the question, and then you say, absolutely, let me get my food. Nobody knows what that service charge is for. We've never asked. Postman's is doing really well, so obviously they know, and they know how to keep business intact. But it's that kind of thing that we have going on in God's temple. It's that items are being sold left and right. Money is being exchanged. And along the way, the people that are running this market hand in hand with the people working in this temple, are making money off the people. Where is all that money going to? The people don't know. They come and they go. But they're being charged double for worshiping God. Friends, I think that is a helpful reminder to all of us. As we think of approaching God, as we come to a church like this one or any other one that you've ever visited in your life, Anywhere where the worship of God has a, a dollar sign attached to it, where your money is equated with the way that we worship, is a place that you need to run from. It costs us nothing to worship God. And the reason is because the cost is all going to be paid by the one who's entering the temple now. All these sacrifices being made, behold, here is the Lamb of God who has come to take the sin of the world. Here comes a sacrifice unlike any other. And he makes it so that grace is free and worship of God can be truly from the heart. The people have been led so far astray from a true worship of God that Jesus steps in. He sees this going on. And verse 15, as I used to say, he goes ape. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And not only that, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You understand what that looks like? Look, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that right now. I might. But it's a different Jesus than the one that you're used to, isn't it? When you think of Jesus, you, you tend to think of one who's meek and mild, one who's gracious and compassionate. It's, in fact, the Jesus we've already seen at the wedding at Cana. At that wedding, it's Jesus' compassion that drives him to rescue these people from their social shame, to rescue this wedding from the shame that it would produce in the community. Jesus' compassion drives him to bring joy into this wedding. Here, this doesn't look like compassion. 
And that's because it isn't. It's simply passion. Here there is an unfiltered zeal for God's house and God's worship. You don't tamper with what God is doing. You don't mess with what God has asked for. When God gives clear instructions on how to worship with him, you don't change that. You don't make that what you want it to be. And you don't use God to achieve your own desires. You don't use God to make your own money. You don't use God to cheat people out. God is not to be used. God is to be honored and worshipped. And in a house like this, no one can do that. Jesus steps into this temple and he can't hear people praying. He can't hear people singing. He can't hear the scripture being read because all that you can hear are oxen and sheep and pigeons and coins jingling and jangling all over the place. The sounds of the temple are the sounds of a marketplace and it isn't to be that way. Jesus takes it so seriously that he turns this whole place upside down. No one does a thing. I think that's a good way to notice that everyone in the room understood that what they were doing was wrong. No one steps in and says, Jesus, don't, don't do this. Jesus, you really, shouldn't, you really shouldn't let all those animals loose. Why are you making a whip? What are you going to use that for? Why are you turning over the tables? Why are, you, why are you turning this place upside down? They let him go at it. Isn't that interesting? The good news in this is that as wrong as we might tend to be in our worship of God, Jesus is gracious enough to show up and show us those realities. He does that for these people here. And he purges this temple of all of its nonsense. It isn't to be a place where, uh, where there's a market. It isn't to be a place where people are being abused. It isn't a place where we should hear the sounds of animals over the voices of God's people singing praise to him. And so in verse 16, he turns to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here, Jesus demonstrates that he truly is of God because where no other man in the room would say anything about God's worship being defiled, God's son stepped in and fixed it. God's son stepped in and did what was necessary to bring God the honor due his name. And his disciples remembered, they looked back on a particular text, and it's noted that this text is Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's a look back at these words of David that hearken in the disciples' mind who this Jesus really is. This Messiah, this King of Israel, this great teacher, this Son of Man and Son of God, he takes God seriously, and we know exactly who he is because this is what he came to do. He came to show us how God takes himself seriously and how he desires for us to take him seriously. 
Now, when you come to church, it's not quite this experience. However, I think that all of us, even individually, have an ability to come to God's house with very, very different motives to that which, which God desires. It might not be the selling of oxen and sheep and pigeons. You might not be exchanging money. And however, we can still ask the question, why do you come here? What is your purpose for being here? Some of you are here because your friends are here. Some of you are here because your mom and dad tell you you have to be here. Some of you are here because you don't have better Sunday plans. <laughs> Some of you are here because you simply don't want to do something wrong. You figure you might as well do something that's beneficial or something that's good or something that's noble or something that's worthy. And listen, those things could be good, but that's not the point of being here. The point of being in God's house is God. And when people come together in the house of the Lord, it is to worship him. And Jesus has shown us, even in the way that he's handled this situation at the temple, that God takes his worship seriously, but so does he. The Father is serious about how he is to be worshipped, and so is the Son. And so do you call yourself a Christian? Then you come here to worship him. You come here for him. You come to this place so that you would behold God and worship God and bring honor to God because that's what he's worthy of. This is a place where God is to be worshiped. Anything other than that, to be here for any other reason, is to offend God. And it's something that Jesus purges of this temple. Notice that this leads us, secondly, to Jesus predicting his death. Jesus purges the temple, and secondly here, he predicts his death. Why is temple worship to be taken so seriously? Why does it matter how we enter into this place? Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answers them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Notice here, First in verse 18, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? And it's amazing. They don't admit their fault. They don't even tell Jesus he's wrong for doing this. That's not the question that they have in mind. The question they have in mind is, who are you? Or who do you think that you are? On what authority do you get to do what you just did? There's a little bit in it whereby the silence in their words, they admit that they're wrong. Their admittance of their evil is in that they don't bring it up. Instead, they try to pivot it to Jesus and ensnare him in a trap and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? How is it that you have the right to do what you 
did. And Jesus' answer stumps them all, and they don't get it. What right does Jesus have to turn over the Lord's temple? Because if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. And the people, of course, take him very literally. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're telling us that the work we did for 46 years, you can do it in three days? And the temple had gone through extensive reconstruction. This isn't Solomon's temple at this point. This is uh, post-exile. It had taken a long time to put this together. And in fact, the 46 years being talked about here, it could refer to some reconstruction that's going on in the temple. And so there's daily work happening in this temple. In fact, it might not even be over yet. How is it if it's taken this long to reconstruct this temple that you'll do that in three days? The reason is Jesus is not describing the place of worship. Jesus is talking about the person of worship. Where the Jews had become consumed with ritual and place and tradition and nation, Jesus came to give us himself. Those who are to truly worship God now recognize it no longer has to do with where I am. It has to do with who he is. You can tear all this temple down, and it wouldn't matter. And those who will try to destroy this temple, my body, Jesus says, will not do any harm to me, for in three days I will raise it up. What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is not only God, but he's merciful and compassionate. His passion for God's glory leads him to compassion for his people. God and his son is so about the worship of the father that he gives us himself. And though in the temple there was so much going on that would have been offensive to God, here steps in Jesus, the one who is perfect and fully obedient and righteous, the one in whom there is no sin, and the one who would give himself for his people, so that all who would worship in his name would be right before the Father. The disciples would soon understand this. Once Jesus would give his life and raise up again from the dead, verse 22, his disciples would remember back on what he said here. And notice, they would believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's powerful. And it shows us something about who Jesus is. You want to know that Jesus is God? You can take scripture and you can take Jesus' words and they're the same. The disciples look back on this and they realize we were listening to God. That's who this is. And so in this temple worship, In this scene where the temple needs to be rid of all kinds of worship that is unpleasant and dishonoring to God, Jesus demonstrates unto us that he knows full and well how it is that true worship will come about the hearts of his people. It isn't through ritual. It isn't through sacrifice. It's through him. It's because the Lamb of God would give his life for his people. And he would not stay in the grave, but he would raise again. And he would live 
And he would demonstrate unto all that he has power over life and death. And therefore, he has power to tell us how we ought to worship him. Notice here thirdly and finally, verses 23 to 25, Jesus proves his deity. Jesus proves his deity. If you don't get it yet that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're not seeing how seriously God takes his own worship, by means of how he cleanses this temple of its nonsense, how, by means of how he demonstrates unto us what will happen to him in his life and his death and his resurrection. Notice it here in verses 23 to 25. And the reality that he knows us better than we know ourselves. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Incredible. It reminds us that Jesus is God, and we know that because Jesus already knows us. Many believed in his name at this Passover feast, but notice why. Because he does awesome things. That's what verse 23 says. As he's at this Passover feast and many believe in his name because they see the signs he's doing. They've seen, they've maybe heard even of what he did at this wedding. They've seen now what he's done at the temple. He's mustered up the courage to do what no other man would do. He takes God seriously. Many believe in what he's doing. Few believe in who he is. That's the issue that we run into here. And Jesus proves that he's deity and the fact that he's not surprised by that. Verse 24, Jesus on his part, he doesn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Friends, that is a reminder to all of you. It's not simply about whether or not you're hiding anything from God. I think it's more along the lines of Jesus knows you way better than you might know yourself. Jesus understands exactly where your heart is. Nothing can be hidden from him, yes, but also Jesus cannot be deceived by you. You're in this room and you say you love Christ, but you go from this room day in and day out and live like you know nothing about him. You're not fooling him. He knows you. You come into this room and you say you love him. Jesus knows exactly what you mean when you say that. Jesus knows your heart better than you know yourself. He needs no one to say or give him extra information about you. That's what verse 25 is telling us. No one needs to bear witness about man. He doesn't need a recap. He doesn't need a run sheet. He doesn't need a summary. He doesn't need a spark notes. He knows you inside and out. It's because he knows everyone so well that at this time he does not entrust himself to those around him. Now you might be thinking, that's kind of messed up on Jesus' part, isn't it? If Jesus knows us so well, why wouldn't he just declare who he is and, and make this what it should be? Show us who we are and show us who you are and all things will be right. 
It wasn't time yet for that here. And so Jesus doesn't demonstrate here what he will demonstrate and what we all know about him now. And think about the marvelous reality that in spite of knowing us as well as he does, Jesus continues with his mission. And he continues with his purpose. Jesus, knowing you full well, knowing your heart, knowing your sin, knowing the reasons that you come here or the reasons that you don't, knowing the reasons you worship him or not, knowing whether you want to or not, Jesus gives himself as that perfect and holy sacrifice to redeem you. Friends, this gives us a portrait, not only of the reality that Jesus is God, but that we ought to worship him. That those who come face to face with God should cry out to him, thanking him for his mercy, his grace, and his goodness. Jesus did not entrust himself to men here because the work was not finished. But now... The lamb has given himself up for us. And Jesus no longer lives in a grave. Jesus is enthroned in heaven. And this so that you, in knowing him, might turn to worship God. Now and forevermore. Friend, I don't know your heart. But he does. And if he does, and he's willing to know you in that way, and he's willing to put all your sin aside, he's willing to put all your shame aside, he's willing to cast all your guilt away, and he's willing to save you from yourself, is that an offer you are willing to pass up? If you've received the gift of God's free grace, I pray that you too would take God seriously, that you would take God's worship seriously as Jesus does here, that you would have that true saving faith that then goes and tells others to join you in worshiping God as he desires to be worshiped. And yet you would help others to come to a true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Friends, there's many ways that we can respond to Jesus. And we even heard about it this morning from Pastor John. And Jesus is not here to give you some kind of emotional experience or something that's excitable or something that's compartmental where you worship him here, but you don't really do it elsewhere. You don't really take time for Jesus elsewhere. You don't really have time for Jesus anywhere else in your life. This isn't the kind of faith that's wishy-washy, and this isn't the kind of faith that's selfish. The kind of faith that Jesus inspires here is one that takes God seriously and recognizes that by means of his son, I can actually worship God no matter where I am. That in every facet of my life, God is worthy of my worship and he is worthy of being honored. To worship and to honor God is not about a temple, but it's about a person. And it's about Jesus making it possible for us to honor God day in and day out. That once we've received Jesus, we can declare like Peter that we now have everything that we need for life and godliness. The kind of purging that happened in this temple can happen also in your heart. If today you receive Christ as he is. He is one who takes his worship seriously. 
And he is also the one who makes it possible for you to worship him the way he ought to be worshipped. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you, God, that you have come not to make a religious people, but to make a worshipful people. You have come to make a people who aren't bound to just mere ritual and ordinance, but who truly worship you because they know you. And they know you because they're known by you. Jesus, you know who belongs to you. And so if anyone in this room, even now, has not come to a saving knowledge of Christ, I pray that they would recognize God already knows where their heart is. And that through Jesus the Son, they can be made right with you. Thank you that your spirit makes your truth clear to us. It inspires us to live for you. And thank you that by means of your word, we have everything we need to honor you. Help us to commit to you, seeing just how clearly you've committed to us through the gospel of your son. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.